has given me a word, something on my heart that I want to reveal to you through his spirit. Let's start with prayer. Father in heaven, we pray that you will take this next few minutes and make them completely yours. Let your word be heard. Let your son Jesus be lifted up and may all be drawn to him and him alone. In Jesus' name, amen. The events of January 6th in Washington, D.C. have cast a pall of uncertainty over the nation. There seems to be a crisis of identity. Just what kind of people are we in this country? Which is the real America? The rioters of the 6th or the inaugurators of the 20th? Insurrectionists stormed the Capitol building with brutal force on January 6th, using the American flag as a weapon to beat a police officer. Two weeks later on the same spot, Joe Biden took the oath of office using nearly 2,000 flags as a symbol to be saluted and pledged to. And the contradiction of the two Americas diametrically opposed hauntingly reminds us of the prophecy of the lamb-like beast of Revelation 13, 11. The Bible says, then I saw a second beast coming out of the earth it had two horns like a lamb, but when it opened its mouth, it spoke like a dragon. If there's one thing January 6th has taught us, it's how easily the institutions of America can be exposed and shut down, including the hollowed halls of Congress. And as we see it, beloved, we should take it as a sign, a sign of the end. Matthew 24, verses 1 and 2. Join me if you have your Bible. The Bible says Jesus left the temple and was walking away when his disciples came up to call his attention to the buildings of the temple. He said, do you see all these things? I tell you the truth. Not one stone here will be left upon another that will not be thrown down. The difference in perspective between Jesus and his men as they gaze upon the temple is important for us to notice. It represents a difference in worldview. As Jesus leaves the Jerusalem temple for the last time, it is with a broken heart. His people have rejected him. Some have deserted him. Some have doubted him. Some have openly opposed him. John 11 says, he came unto his own, and his own received him not. As he crosses the Kindred Valley with his men, they begin to climb the Mount of Olives on the other side. The uphill path takes a sudden turn and the temple they have just left comes back into view. And they pause a moment to take it in. In all of its splendor, it's a building that inspires awe. It is not just a building, but a complex of buildings with a plaza, in the middle, and the temple at the center. It's built on a rectangle 500 yards long and 400 yards wide. That's five football fields beside across four football fields. It's an immense structure, marble stones and plates of gold. The stones range in weight between two tons and 100 tons. One stone weighs 400 tons and stands 40 feet high. That's a single stone the size of a four-story building. It's a magnificent structure. There's no mortar between the stones to hold them together. 
And yet they stand so close that not even a slip of paper can be pushed between them. To this day, it's a mystery how it was constructed. The historian Josephus said this, it is the most uh, marvelous edifice we have ever seen or heard of. Whether one considers its structure, its magnitude, or the richness of every detail, it is the glory of Israel, a symbol of her special standing with God. The Jews consider it to be the only true sanctuary on the earth. And every time the disciples look at it, they are filled with patriotic pride. Their chests stick out. Their hearts stand at attention. It is tied to their self-image. They see themselves as a great people through the temple. It's amazing the power a building can have when we invest our identity in it. But as Jesus looks at the temple, he does not see what the disciples see. He stands right beside his men and looks at it, himself a Jew, but he feels no patriotism. His identity is not tied to Jerusalem, at least the Jerusalem down here. He looks at the temple, Jesus does, with prophetic eyes and sees everything differently. The difference in perspective between Christ and his men as we look at the temple, it's important for us to notice because it represents a difference in worldview. At this point in chapter 24, Jesus has been in the temple since chapter 21 teaching the people, confronting the Jewish leaders. He relates three parables in his teaching, and in all three, he casts the leaders of Israel as villains. The church leaders are the bad guys in Christ's parables. He has four disputes with them while he is there, one with the chief priests and elders, one with the Pharisees and Herodians, one with the Sadducees, and then one with an expert lawyer. Christ takes them on, one after the other, face to face, and silences them all with his wisdom. This is important. Christ does not talk about people behind their backs. He talks to them face to face. And he silences all of them with his wisdom. But our Lord's most scathing rebuke, he saves for the Pharisees in chapter 23. He says of them, he says, Everything they do is done for people to see. They love the place of honor at banquets and the most important seats in the synagogues. This is the deception that Christ hates the most, hypocrisy. The secret heart of pride hiding behind the outward appearance of religiosity. He calls the Pharisees blind guides and whitewashed tombs. He calls them snakes and vipers, but he does not speak these things in anger or bitterness. Christ speaks these words of a group from a broken heart. And we know this by the way he ends the discourse. It's one of the saddest passages in all of scripture. Matthew 23, 37 to 39. He says, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. Jerusalem in the time of Christ no longer stands for a great people. It stands for a people who have rejected their Lord. The disciples don't realize it yet, but following Jesus is going to require them to abandon all their earthly cultural goals and all the pride and pretension that comes with them. I wonder if we've realized it yet. Have we given up our worldly ambitions for Jesus? Or do we still find our identity primarily in our citizenship below? 
Is our identity tied up more in our birth than in our rebirth? Have we realized that we are aliens down here, that we don't fit in and that we're not supposed to fit in? Have we served the world its divorce papers? Or are we still hanging on separated, but from time to time still in love? Is our identity bound up in our earthly dreams and our power and our possessions? It's a soul-searching question, beloved, because if it is, we really don't want Jesus to come, at least not yet. We have some things we want to accomplish down here first, which puts us in the category of those who will be caught unawares when he comes. When Jesus looks at the temple of Jerusalem, he does not see it architecturally as some great structure or culturally as a symbol of national greatness. He sees it prophetically as an eschatological sign. It's impending destruction, a symbol of the final end to which all cultures must come when the world is destroyed at his second coming. Beloved, are we ready for this? The coronavirus pandemic, the political upheaval, and the signs in nature that are taking place are just the beginnings of the final destruction that must come. But do we see these events prophetically ourselves the way Jesus sees them, or have we given up our Adventist faith and become pragmatic Christians? Do we see the conditions of the world as a sign of the end? Or are we waiting for things to get better, to go back to normal, hoping against hope that we can get our lives back again? Of all the focus on COVID-19 and the divisive politics, we've paid less attention to some of the other signs. 2020 was a record-breaking year for storms on the Atlantic coast. Nature itself coming apart at the seams under the weight of tragic sin. Now the forecasters use letters of the Greek alphabet to name storms, alpha, beta, delta, theta, but in 2020, they ran out of letters. A typical storm season produces 12 tropical tropical storms, but 2020 spawned 30 storms, the most in any season since they started naming storms. The scientists have their explanations based on things they can trace in nature. They point to the warmer sea temperatures in the North Atlantic. They detect lower than usual surface pressure in the tropics. They look for causes in the atmospheric conditions, wind shear and trade wind, the lingering effects of La Nina, all good explanations of the causes of the increased storm activity of 2020. And this is the role of science, to explain causes based on the study of nature. Science explains things that they are, but science is not prophecy. It cannot cannot explain the reason things are as they are. The ultimate meaning, Beneath the surface, the meaning that's prophetic, that has eternal consequences, is revealed only in the word of God. So when disciples today look at storms and see only troubled waters or the trembling earth or the angry skies, we're not seeing as Christ sees. Because when Jesus looks at storms, he sees the signs of the times that the world is in its final stages. The Bible gives us the meaning that science cannot deduce. The word of God makes it clear what's going on. It says in Romans 8.22 that the whole creation is groaning under the weight of sin. 
Revelation 7, 1 says, the four angels on the four corners of the earth are loosing the winds of strife. John 16, 8, 2 Thessalonians 2, 7 tell us that the restraining power of the Holy Spirit is being withdrawn from the earth and the forces of evil are gaining more and more strength. Science sees only natural causes. The word of God explains the prophetic meaning. Jesus says, all these things of the beginning of birth pains, Jesus is coming again. Do we see as Christ sees or as the disciples see? Where do our affections lie? There's something else I want us to see in Matthew 24. And by the way, the servant of God says Matthew 24 was shown to her as a chapter that should especially be preached right now in the end time. Something else I want us to see. Christ's predictions of the end include more than just signs of nature or signs in politics. He also points to human nature as a sign. There are signs of the end in the human heart, which, like the earth, is crumbling under the pressing weight of tragic sin. Christ talks about it in verses 10 to 12 of Matthew 24. The Bible says, and then many will be offended and will betray one another and will hate one another. Then many false prophets will arise up and deceive many. And because lawlessness will abound, the love of many some translations say the love of most will grow cold. In the pressure cooker of final events, a breaking point is reached in which many who follow Christ fall away from the truth. The Living Bible says, many of you shall fall back into sin. We've often been warned about the shaking that will take place before the return of our Lord. And indeed, the shaking has already begun. Our faith is to be tested so it may be perfected. Our love and loyalty to Jesus and his cause must be brought to maturity or will never endure the test of the end. Testimonies, volume one, 355, the servant of God says this, I saw that God is purifying and proving his people. He will refine them as gold until the dross is consumed and his image is reflected in them. Everything is to be shaken that can be shaken. It's the final test of faith that determines the elect who endures to the end. And it's not described in terms of rule keeping. Stay with me now, church. Those who fall back into sin and darkness at the end are not identified by Jesus according to their dress or diet, but by how they relate to their fellow believers. This is what they do who lose their faith in the end. They betray one another and they hate one another. They may be wearing conservative suits and skirts below the knee as they do so, but they hate each other. The loss of faith among believers in the last days is revealed in our human relationships, not in our dress and diet. Paul wrote to the church in Corinth, 1 Corinthians 3. He told them about themselves. He said, brothers and sisters, verses 1 to 3, brothers and sisters, I could not address you as people who live by the Spirit, but as people who are still worldly, mere infants in Christ. I gave you milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. Indeed, you are still not ready. You are still, then he tells what he means, you are still worldly. For since there is jealousy and quarreling among you, are you not worldly? 
Are you not acting like mere humans? The Bible's idea of what constitutes worldliness is different from ours. We say a person is worldly if they drink and smoke and go to the clubs. But the Bible goes further than that. A person can be sober, a non-smoker, attending church every week, and still be worldly by the Bible's definition. Worldliness is revealed in the worldly heart, a heart that's attached to the world, which shows itself in how we treat one another. God's standard is much higher than ours. It's easier to dress right than it is to love right. It's one thing to eat a vegan diet, which is good as far as it goes. It's another thing to love your enemies. Fruits and vegetables can't help us with that. We must have transformed hearts. Nothing reveals the worldly heart more than a spirit that is unloving. 1 John 3, 14 and 15. We know we've passed from death to life because we love our brothers. Anyone who does not love remains in death. Anyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life in him. After the resurrection, Jesus wanted to restore Peter. Peter had shamed himself by denying his Lord. Christ wanted to restore him. He asked Peter only one question, and he asked it three times. Not, Peter, have you read your Sabbath school lesson today? Not, Peter, did you close the Sabbath on time? His question was, Peter, do you love me? One question, three times, do you love me? Then he said, if you love me, do what? Feed my sheep. Love to God revealed in love to each other. If you love me, feed my sheep. We've been watching the storms, watching the pandemic, watching the politics, but have we as earnestly been watching our own hearts? Are they filled with the divine qualities of, of loyalty, honesty, and love and faith? The signs of the end are not only out there, the signs of the end are in here. Do you love your wife or do you wish something would happen to her so you can be free? Do you respect your husband or are you his worst and harshest critic? Just waiting for him to make one misstep so you can pounce on him. Do you honor your parents? Do you respect God's appointed leaders? Do you even love your fellow believer in the same church that sits right next to you sometimes? Jesus says that one of the signs of the last days is cold human hearts people that hate one another instead of loving one another, and especially in the church. Are we watching our hearts for the signs of the end? Or our hearts growing cold? Are we, getting, are we drifting further and further away from those we're meant to love? The signs of the end are in human nature, not just in nature. A deacon handed me a note after worship one Sabbath. The note read, someone told me I was sitting in their seat, quote, get out of my seat. I was about to leave since I'm a visitor, but then the person behind him said, come sit with us. In the church, but full of the world. Two different kinds of members sitting one behind the other in the row. 
Which kind of church member are you? Get out of my seat or come sit with us. While we're watching the signs of nature, watching the economy, watching politics as those who deserve the time, we must remember, beloved, to watch our hearts and our characters and our relationships. When we take care to keep our love for Jesus burning and our love for each other warm and strong, we're getting ready for Jesus to come. The most important signs are the inner signs, the compassion of heart, the love that is expressed in commitment to Christ and his cause, the love of God that is revealed in the way we treat other people, starting with our own family. And because someone is hard to love, does not excuse us from loving them. We're hard to love too with all the betrayal and false promises we've made to Jesus, but he still loves us and his love enables us to love as well. Jesus looked at the building of Jerusalem. He didn't look at it with patriotism. He looked at it with a prophetic eye. He looks at us, at our hearts. He's looking to see if we're making ourselves ready for him to come. And the love of Christ in our hearts is the one thing that can prepare us for the end of the world. It's a story of a blind girl who hated her life because of her disability. She was angry at the world, she hated herself. The only one who understood her was her boyfriend, but she would not marry him in her condition, no matter how much he proposed. She said, if I, if I could only see the light of day, I'd marry you in a minute. But she didn't want to marry him the way she was. Then a miracle. Someone donated a pair of eyes, and with surgery, her sight was restored. When the bandages came off, the first sight she saw was her boyfriend's face, but she was not ready for it. He was blind. The sight of his closed, empty eyelids shocked her. She could not imagine looking at them for the rest of her life. She broke off the relationship. She took her new eyes and took off. Some weeks later, got a letter from her ex-boyfriend. He talked about how hurt he was, how disappointed. And he ended the letter like this. He, ended like this. he said, take care of your new eyes because before they were yours, they were mine. Oh, beloved, that's what Christ has done to us giving to us what is dearest to him so that we can see the way he wants us to see. And what he wants us to see most of all, beloved, is our own hearts. The Bible calls for self-examination, lest we fall when we think we stand. Are you watching your heart as a sign, a sign of the end? I pray God you are. And if not, that you'll do so today. If God's word has impressed you, make a commitment to him right now to give him your life, confess your sins, and turn your life over to him as your Lord and Savior. Father in heaven, we thank you for your gracious kindness and long-suffering with us. And Father, we don't want to take it for granted. We don't want to presume upon your mercy. We don't want to make you wait. 
when the time is now. So help us to surrender our hearts to you, Lord, right now, completely. Divorcing ourselves from the things of this world and giving our life to you and to your kingdom for your honor and glory. Lord, help us to love each other the way you have loved us. That was Jesus' prayer. That's our heart's deep desire. Hear it, Lord, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.